So we're halfway through a two-week parliamentary break week. Um, things are a little sleepy in Ottawa, but the federal budget is only a few weeks away on April 19th, so things should be picking up rather soon. Um, I've got something a little different for you in your feed today, or our feed today. I don't know. Uh, it's both of ours, I guess. Um, coming up is an episode of a different podcast, uh, Wonks and War Rooms by University of Ottawa professor Elizabeth Dubois. The idea behind the podcast is blending communications theory and politics in practice. Um, I This isn't entirely dissimilar for uh, listeners of the show. We'll know that this is sometimes similar to the approach that we take in our podcast, and that was sort of really the roots, was coming at it from a quasi-academic uh, perspective, blending the academic theory sometimes of the government. Canadian government in particular, and uh, what our experiences have been working in politics. Um, so if you enjoy the episode, give it a subscribe, rate and review, uh, all the usual things, and I uh, hope you enjoy. Welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where Polcom theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois. I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, I'm recording from the traditional and unceded territory of the Algonquin people. In today's episode, we're talking all about liquid politics with my guest, Etienne. Etienne is a co-host of The Boys in Short Pants, which is a great podcast you should go check out if you haven't already. In the meantime, I'm going to get him to introduce himself. So my name is Etienne Rainville. I've been in Ottawa for about... What would it be? About seven years now. My first job ever in Ottawa was as a political staff in a minister's office back in the years of the Harper government. Um, after that, I've sort of kicked around Ottawa. I worked a little bit on the government side, um, but eventually really settled on the government relations consulting, where I worked at one of the major uh, consulting firms in Ottawa for the last four or so years. Um, and I've recently moved out of that and am presently working in the government relations sector in the post-secondary education space. Perfect. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here because you do have that kind of multiple roles within the, the realm of political actor or, or political practitioner. And so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about the idea of liquid politics. So I'll start off with the quick kind of academic version of this is what counts as liquid politics. And I'll preface this with, it comes from liquid modernity, which is a like really philosophical, sociological idea. And I am not gonna get us into the deep uh, depths of what modernity is or isn't. But the important thing to know is the idea of liquid comes from this view of society pushing from a state where we had a lot of really uh, strict social structures, there were a lot of bureaucracies, a lot of strict norms about what is and isn't appropriate. There was, you know, thinking about how we work. We maybe had jobs at specific companies and there was loyalty to those companies and from those companies to us for our entire careers. And now we see a working world where actually people jump from place to place. Entrepreneurship, creating your own thing is is a big uh, kind of ideal, the the push towards being individualized and constantly working on yourself to figure things out rather than relying on the community or social structures you're part of to like determine what you are or aren't supposed to do. That's the basic idea of liquid. There's a lot of flexibility, a lot of movement. Fair enough. And so when we take that idea of liquid and we pop it into politics, it's this argument that political practitioners uh, and specifically people like members of parliament or other political actors that we would see 
kind of in the public sphere, they are increasingly relying on others to help them deal with being in this constant state of flux. So we have the idea of politicians who maybe they can't learn about every single policy area that they have to have an opinion on. They have to go vote in the House and they can't know everything there is to know about all of those particularities. And so they've got admin assistants and legislative assistants and advisors and they maybe also read news reports and maybe they even check in on like the op-ed an academic has written recently <laughs> uh, you know so long as it's short that, that's always my <laughs> advice is make sure it's short well i mean that's like a perfect example of it because the whole idea is in this like liquid state we have no time to do deep dives in everything and so you get the short snippet and then the goal is not actually to be an expert on a topic. It's to be what some people have called a pseudo expert, where you you are sound biteable. Your intelligence, your knowledge is like, as long as you can get a sound bite out, you're good to go. Yeah. And so long as no one ever digs in with very technical questions and you can sort of gloss over that, you're, you're fine. The technical questions are for the tech briefing, and we're going to have officials address those um, after our press conference. So hold, hold your technical questions for then media is sort of the state of affairs um, in Ottawa these days, but also, you know, elsewhere. Um, okay, so let me just uh, proceed this conversation by saying I, I tried to do my homework, um, my due diligence on this topic. And the only thing that came up was liquid democracy, which is like about voting systems and about, you know, this, this idea of a niche voting system that's not at all the topic we're talking about. So I guess I'll just throw that out the window. All, all the lovely preparation and consideration I'd given for that topic. Sorry. <laughs> but no, I think I think there is a lot of insight um, in that description of where um, politics and policy is today in Ottawa. Twitter is sort of foundational to the way Ottawa works these days, um, but there's different sides to it. The most important part of using Twitter is knowing that sort of ordinary Canadians are not on Twitter. So as a political vehicle for advertising, you won't see political parties invest a ton of money um, into advertising on Twitter. The sort of common knowledge is Facebook is where it's at. Dump all your money into Facebook and other forms of digital advertising. But where, whereas the public isn't on Facebook or on uh, Twitter rather, the people who are on Twitter are the media, sort of the, uh, the press gallery, um, academics and policy wonks and experts. And so, an inordinate amount of Ottawa is dependent on sort of the shared expertise that academics and others put on Twitter in order to formulate and form their opinion. I've literally been on political panels um, where you're commenting on live breaking events and as soon as the camera goes off, everyone is on their phones looking for opinions basically that they can, let's say, repurpose from Twitter um, as soon as the camera comes back on as their own. Um, for that live breaking event, be it, you know, at the time SNC or, or whatever else it, it might have been. And, and just to build on that a tiny bit more, because I think uh, in part, I mean, you're an example of this, an academic who's on Twitter, um, who has their specialty and comments on sort of current events. Mm -hmm. um, I'm often shocked by the degree to which academics in that position are able to have an outsized voice in the public conversation because of their presence on Twitter and because of their familiarity um, within the Ottawa bubble. Sometimes I joke that there are, you know, five national security experts in Canada. There are seemingly like three uh, intellectual property experts. There are two in this field. There are 
maybe 10 economists and they're basically all the voices on Twitter. And these are the same voices that you'll see before committees uh, of parliament. And these are the same voices that Chase producers will pull into interviews to comment at the end of the day on, you know, the six or seven o'clock news, because that's just where everyone's familiarity lies. And so it's like they're all found on Twitter. Yes. Not a lot of people in Ottawa are doing the, you know, the actual research to pull who is actually the best on this topic. Maybe there's this niche academic on the other side of the country and we deal with the three hour time zone and maybe we can call him and have him on the show. Or who is that University of Ottawa or Carleton professor or University of Toronto or wherever? It, it tends to skew towards the ones sort of closer to Ottawa um, that I always see who's just sort of a generalist in this area. Maybe they'll be interested in talking about this subject. And so let's, let's get them on the show. I, I think there really is a dynamic of that in Ottawa. And it's both a good and a bad thing. Uh, but we can go into that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to talk about sort of the network of of influence, really, right? So it's like, if you are accessible and visible and present, you are more likely to be asked for your ideas and your opinions, and therefore you are more likely to be able to influence the way policy develops or conversations develop or what talking points get put onto the daily email and what ones don't. So one of the things that that actually makes me think about is within this idea of liquid politics, there are two main, I guess, ways that liquidity has been demonstrated. One we've started to talk about already of, you know, it's where you get your information and then how knowledgeable you are on that particular topic or not. And the idea that like, you just can't dive deeply into everything. So you skim a whole bunch of stuff and hope that's good to go. The other side of it is actually looking at the social relationships that you build. So there's this argument that like, when you are with the same company for ages and ages and ages, you get to know everybody in that company really well, you build strong ties and that affords you more kind of social capital or you dive really deeply into to a particular topic and you learn all of the most important people who are talking about that topic and you know who all those experts are and you build stronger relationships with them to be able to draw on them. And we sort of like idealize the strong ties, but what Twitter kind of does is give you a bunch of weak ties. It allows you to kind of know a whole bunch of different people on a whole bunch of different topics. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about that as being like a really useful thing, a very helpful tool when we're thinking about how to get other ideas into the conversation. Yeah, and I think, so let, let me build off um, the earlier point there, which is about the way sort of society has changed from having that 40 year job um, to having, you know, often it's said uh, people in the millennial age group uh, change jobs every three to four years, mm -hmm. sometimes horizontally, sometimes vertically. Um, but a lot of that involves jumping between organizations, depending, you know, it's mediated by, by what field you're in. But to make it specific to government, one of the pieces of advice I got um, when I first came to Ottawa in, in relation to government work was every two years, you should look to move uh, vertically or laterally. Um, and in the context of the federal public service, that often means jumping between departments a lot. So mm -hmm. in the federal public service, the amount of specialists are actually very, very limited. The vast majority of policy work in the federal government is done by generalists, generalists who do not have a ton of institutional knowledge. 
and who lean on you know many of the things you've been discussing about that ability to be uh, very broad and then have uh, be sufficiently dynamic in order to learn a topic very very quickly um, when the need is there but often they jump around between positions you know incredibly frequently um, and it's a model that is worth reconsidering but it's it's certainly the direction that our own federal civil service has gone um, sort of in tandem to society at large I would say that's really interesting because I I was kind of thinking about okay well maybe politicians themselves take take an MP's office for example you've got the MP who's been elected maybe they're freshly elected maybe they're going to get a term or two but really we don't see people stay on that long most of the time so they're going to be at some point relatively new they may switch which files they're on quite a lot throughout their time in the house then we've got their staff their staff are usually really young really dynamic because like to survive that lifestyle you gotta you gotta have a particular life stage <laughs> yes it often doesn't pay well it's long hours it lends itself to 20 somethings who have sort of weak attachments and are able to work sort of late at night yeah um so yeah my first comment was on the the federal civil service because i, I find that personally fascinating and it's one i've been watching but it's even more true at the political level you're right to point to mps mps are moved between um, shadow shadow minister or critic roles regularly. Ministers, this is for, for casual observers um, of Canadian politics, people are often confused as to why ministers don't align with necessarily the careers um, that that person has had up until that point. There's, there's a few examples where that's not really the case. I could point to like Bill Blair, who's now Minister of Public Safety um, and comes from a policing background. Uh, Harjit Sajan, who is a who'd served in the Canadian Armed Forces um, and is now Minister of National Defense. But there's actually a strong case to be made that you don't that it's less than ideal to have them in those roles because they come with preconceived uh, notions. Really? Yeah. So I can give you the example of Andrew Leslie. Andrew Leslie was a general in the Canadian Armed Forces, and he was seen to be on the fast track for cabinet and ultimate and likely wanted the position of Minister of National Defense. Ultimately, never got the role and ducked out of the Trudeau government early. But in a way, it's wise to not put them in the roles. There's stronger traditions in the United States around um, civilian military sort of distinction and separation. And you don't necessarily want someone who is in a civilian role to be bringing the weight and experience, particularly around law enforcement and armed forces. And so I often argue, or I, you know, it's a bugbear of mine, that I don't like seeing someone like Harjit Sajan and Bill Blair in those roles coming from those backgrounds because it's conflating, you know, this nice separation, this nice wall we have between having a civilian representative, uh, a civilian political representative being in charge of our police and our armed forces. Um, but it's not a conversation. It, it came up initially when Harjit Sajan was put in that role, but it's a conversation that lasted all of about five minutes. Right, right. That's really interesting to think like, you might not want somebody who has done a deep dive into the particular thing to be in that role. And when we think about how the House of Commons in particular came up, like we elect representatives to be representatives of the people. And, you know, whether or not you think the Senate's a good idea, the idea behind the Senate is like that's where we have the people who have like domain expertise that will spend much more time 
diving really deeply and that you know the sober second thought we can yeah. we don't need to go full senate but <laughs> the the idea of like thinking about the actual role we want these people and by extension their offices to play i think that's interesting yeah i mean the canadian system and so we've talked about a few different levels talked about the federal um civil service talked about mps offices and ministers themselves um there are of course so just just to finish on the point of ministers there are exceptions to that generally the minister of finance is someone with a finance background and generally the attorney general is someone with a legal background mm -hmm. but broadly ministers are above all else political entities and administrators and to be an administrator you don't necessarily have to have that subject matter expertise a good administrator often isn't someone with that subject matter expertise but to then scratch the layer uh, a little more to go into ministers' offices, which in Canada are about 15 staff. Um, I, I would note very different from the UK, where the UK doesn't really have this conception of ministers' offices that we do. They have what they call SPAD, special advisors, and they have one to two of those, a minister. I'm using rabbit ears. Um, and it's very controversial when they have more than one or two. And they serve a very different function than we do in Canada in relation to what our political staff do, our, our, minister, our minister's office staff. And the people who make up those um, positions are actually incredibly interesting because, and the, I, I should caveat this with, uh, as I said in the introduction, this is a, a role that I've been in before, but I was on at that time, the communication side. Uh, my emphasis here is really on the, uh, the policy side of things. In every minister's office, there are policy experts um, that basically represent different files. So for instance, when I was at public safety, we had a policy person who was in charge of RCMP policy a policy person who was in charge of uh, CBSA, Canadian Border Security. Those people were not experts in the RCMP or in Canadian Border Services. Their role is to play the challenge function for the bureaucracy, to take what the federal um, civil servants tell them, to challenge them on any assumptions, to pick at it, to find holes, and then to frame all of that, take it away and repackage it in a political lens that generally civil servants either don't have or should not have. Mm. And so the role there, I, I can give you an example when I was working at Global Affairs very early on in my career. And so this was on the, uh, the civil service side. And a colleague turned to me and made reference to a name that they'd seen on a prime minister's office, a PMO staff list, and said, I went to school with that person. They're only you know, 26. How are they in charge of development policy and PMO? How does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Well, their, their job, their function there is not to be an expert on development policy. Their function is to challenge things and frame it around the government's agenda. There, there are exceptions to this. You know, some minister's offices will hire um, policy experts, but it tends to wane over the lifetime of a government. Often very early on when a government is formed, they're able to attract um, a broader array of talent from the private sector, public sector, all across Canada who ride the wave of enthusiasm for that government into Ottawa, serve in those roles for three years is usually a good amount of time before they're burnt out and they return sort of to their previous lives. Um, but over the life of a government, and we certainly saw this in the Harper government, I think the same is very much true of uh, this Trudeau government, is over the years, those people, the, the, the genuine policy experts tend to depart um, and increasingly the roles are filled by generations of political staff behind them who perhaps 
uh, volunteered in an MP's office who got or uh, with a candidate who got elected as MP, worked in the Constit office, made it to Ottawa, worked on the Hill, then makes the step up to whichever ministry, right? And so their, their function and their knowledge and their background is entirely partisan, entirely political. Um, and they're just slotted into a role and say, okay, you're now in charge of fisheries policy for Western Canada. You know, find the, the best treatises next week when you show up to work. I hope you're briefed up on it and ready to go and ready to talk about to, to stakeholders about their legitimate concerns. And so one of the things right. stakeholders have to do and have to be conscious of whenever they're dealing with government and particularly um, the political side is educating them on their perspective. And sometimes it's historical perspectives because historical perspective in Ottawa can be incredibly shallow at times. Right, because there isn't that sort of institutional knowledge because everybody is like pretty fresh on whatever they're doing. Yeah, everybody in virtually every role <laughs> Um, has only been there for three years is really a good way to approach Ottawa. And so sometimes that historical memory gets, you know, passed between people by well-written out transition documents. Mm -hmm. um, but often that's not the case. And so often you go in and you have to just make the assumption that you need to educate people on the history of the file. Because let me build on that example I gave of fishery stakeholders. Fishery stakeholders are people who have been, their life's work has been on a fishing boat and they are familiar with every major regulatory change that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has made over the past 45 years. Um, but the staff in DFO who have jumped between maybe Agriculture Canada, maybe DFO, maybe you know public works and procurement, it, it doesn't really matter. Federal civil servants, political staff, everyone broadly are generally subject matter agnostic. There are uh, a core group of specialists. I don't, I don't want to discount those people. There's government scientists um, and others in that category, but they are vastly outnumbered in terms of our institutions by generalists. Mm, right. And so is it seen as part of your role when you're, you know, you're fresh into one of those roles where you're like, okay, you got to be able to brief them in two days, go. Is that like, are you seeing it as part of your role to then all right, I got to become an expert because I've been given this file? Or do you still just need to be a basic generalist who can understand who's important in the particular file? You want to develop expertise because to, to play that challenge function with government, let's use the example of someone in a minister's office. Mm -hmm. To play that challenge function with government, you need to start building that expertise um, because it allows you to be more effective. But the, the saying is, you don't want to out-department the department. Your job is not at the end of the day to become a greater subject matter expertise in, in that file area than the analyst the government has hired, who perhaps you never meet um, because you only deal with civil servants above a certain pay grade. This, this is often, there's sort of an insulating that goes on. So your, your function isn't to be more technically in the weeds because you can't be. Right. Because the amount of range that you have to have within your file area, I, I gave the example earlier of having a policy um, officer or a policy advisor who's in charge of the entire RCMP, right? Um, so if you think about what that means, that means you have to very quickly be able to challenge a bunch of different files as they come up to you. And, and maybe one is re you're really passionate about, say, firearms policy, and you really dig into that one, and you get to know the ins and outs of that particular file, maybe better than the analysts at the end of the day. But ultimately, you can't do that with all your files. You, you can pick one or two that are perhaps really salient on the government agenda, what have you. 
but the range of files which you're expected to tackle as a minister's office is incredibly broad and you're only one person. And to, to go up the ladder back to jump to say MP's office, or I'll use the example of uh, leader of the official opposition or third party. So this would be, today it would be Aaron O'Toole's office or uh, Jagmeet Singh's office. The people who do policy in those offices generally now we're up the chain a lot more. In Jagmeet Singh's office, there's about three people that do policy for all of the government of Canada. And so their files, instead of being sort of subsets of a department, are now multiple departments. They have collections of maybe all the economic departments in Canada, and those are all their files. And so they have to know broadly what all the political issues are related to it. And it's really not sustainable to do that in any significant degree. You have to be a very you have to be very fast on your feet. Um, you have to know where to look when things are breaking to help develop your own opinions. That's where tools like Twitter become very useful. Oh, what's the latest policy on childcare the government has announced? Let me go look at the three economists that I usually read and whose opinions I like on childcare um, as they pronounce themselves on Twitter. Right. Uh, maybe we have to push back the press conference because they haven't tweeted anything <laughs> yet and we don't know what our opinion should be. Like. These all become very real, real concerns and considerations. Email somebody like, are you planning on tweeting anytime soon? It would be helpful. Yeah, quite, quite literally. People are often like, you know, I would, I would love if they pronounce it. And they're like, no, I'm teaching a class right now. Like I, I, I didn't watch the announcement. Um, not to say that that precise conversation happens, but that's a very real dynamic is looking to a select group of experts that everyone sort of cultivates. Like I know which economists I like on these files. Right. I know... All the different files that I've been interested in over the years, I know who all the voices are on those files who pronounce themselves on Twitter. And to be honest with you, I don't know a lot of the other experts who are likely there, um, but perhaps locked away somewhere and publishing for academic eyes only because it's not it's not very digestible and it doesn't plug itself well into the policy process. And it's paywalled, right? Like a lot of the time. And it's paywalled. <laughs> you know, if, from the academic perspective, a big bonus of getting things out on Twitter or via things like policy options or the conversation or op-eds, like it allows me an opportunity to get information out that anybody can actually access. And and both in terms of like financially, but the language that we use in a, in a journal article is a little different from the tweets. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And I've often uh, recommended people go to sources like policies, policy options to publish, you know, even if it's basically a summary of academic work mm -hmm. in a form that then, that then can be transmitted to actors in government. Because if you're in government and you're across all these different files and you're in a minister's office and someone sends you a 45 page paper, mm -hmm. um, you know, even if it's a nice PDF and you don't have to worry about the paywall, the odds of you opening that and closing that immediately are, uh, I would say, incredibly high. Yeah. If you send a digestible excerpt or something that's shorter, you know, in that 800 to 1200 word range, the odds of that getting read are increased exponentially. Um, and so that's where these sort of mediators, these bridges uh, are incredibly helpful. And I'll, I'll give a shout out here to Canada 2020 who have who have sort of recognized this. They're one of Canada's think tanks. I mean, I, I use the word think tank hesitantly because we don't have the think tank culture that Washington DC does, that a lot of people use as sort of their template. A lot of our think tanks are 
more so people on a website who occasionally write than sort of full-time dedicated policy professionals. Right. Although there are a few of those. So, I mean, that goes back to sort of the concept we're exploring, where even our think tanks in Canada, many of them are very, I would say, liquid in nature. Um, but among them, perhaps the most liquid is Canada 2020, who doesn't really publish a ton of long-form journal articles or policy white papers or anything along those lines. They're sort of an events tank um, where they have conversations and webinars and seminars and podcasts and things along those lines that are more digestible and to an extent more relevant to the policy conversation in Ottawa um, in terms of format than the traditional think tank writing long form treatises. Right. Yeah. And that actually is a perfect bridge into the next question I wanted to ask, which is like what beyond Twitter, what are the resources that people use to get themselves up to date. Okay, we are dealing with this liquid politics world. We need to quickly learn about whatever the the newest thing is on this topic. You know, okay, you maybe you go to Twitter. That requires you to know who to follow on Twitter in the first place. Maybe you go to something like Canada 2020's events or podcasts, see what they've put out. Are there other key sources that people use when they're trying to get themselves up to speed so if you were to put me in a new policy role let's you know pick one uh your specialty is digital communications um so if you were to put me in a digital communications policy role today um facing the government of canada in some direction so first thing i would do is sort of do a twitter search try and find those people if i'm unsuccessful um one of the other ways i would look is via parliamentary committees and who, what recent legislation there have been and who the witnesses were. Because that's basically just a reiteration of work that the clerks have done or that MP staff have done in terms of finding voices of relevance. And so generally the uh, witnesses before a parliamentary committee are selected sort of proportionately to the committees on an MP, or uh, sorry, to, uh, to the MPs on a committee um, and mm -hmm. represent a lot of that sort of top-level distillation of who the who the relevant policy voices are seen to be in of a given file area. So if I were to look at a recent like communications bill, there's one that uh, Michael Geist is talking about all the time. But if that bill had been before committee and you, you then go look at the witness list and then to go one step further, not only the witness list, but the briefs. So the briefs is often, perhaps not all of these people appeared, but these are all the people who were sufficiently interested in this piece of legislation to write it out on paper and to submit it to the committee, um, mm. which is a very relevant um, and a very interesting way to get information in Ottawa because it lets you know who the relevant stakeholders are, um, often not only in terms of academics, but in terms of industry. So if you look at who submitted briefs to any given file, you can have a pretty good sense of which industries, fields, businesses, academics, whoever, that, that that particular piece of legislation is going to impact. Um, if, if someone were inclined to do this based on this conversation, what I'd recommend is to go look at, so every year the, the finance committee, FINA, F-I-N-A, has a pre-budgetary um, consultation process that they run every year. And you can basically Google FINA pre-budgetary and you can pull up the list of all the briefs submitted to them. There were something like 800 briefs this year. 
and it's an absolute goldmine for finding out what people are interesting you can or are interested in you can look at what the snow the snowmobile association of canada has to say about a given topic <laughs> or any of these you know various stakeholders and it's a very useful window into um given a given policy area but also in terms of advocacy and what different groups are advocating for in their closed door meetings with government of canada or opposition officials right and so you get this they've already done the work to distill their point of view and their argument and their interest a little bit at least by writing it out in this briefing kind of format and then you just get to be like, all right, these are the ones to, to look into in more detail. I wonder if they're on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And then you, you find who the relevant people are. And, you know, it can be the GR person for a given organization because perhaps they are a source into a, a window into that industry. Um, maybe they're retweeting academics that support their position and, you know, so on and so forth. And so people's Twitter feeds can be very particularly people who are issue driven around a single issue or a single set of issues, because generally they know the ecosystem. And so they can be your window into that ecosystem. And then you can sort of take it from there and grow that chain. So you then go to the, the academic who's interested in that and who have they been retweeting and tweeting mm -hmm. about and who do they find interesting? And it's sort of, you can quickly sort of map the entire ecosystem on a given file in that way. Oh my goodness, fast forward to the future where I've like done a whole network study on this because I, in, in, in another part of my academic career, have spent a lot of time doing social network analysis. So anyway, not a topic for today. <laughs> or even, yeah, hashtags related to legislation is something I've used. Um, and you're very thankful to find the academics who are watching a given bill before committee and giving you their thoughts. And you're like, well, okay, that's, that's very good to know. Oh, that's how you understand that. Okay. That's really, really cool to hear. I uh, So I'm working on a research project right now where we're trying to understand the role of explanatory journalism written by academics for policymaking and trying to understand like, to what extent are academics actually able to influence the kinds of ideas that policymakers are putting forward or the ways that they're presenting them or, or what gets priority over what other things uh, and so uh, it's cool to know that which hashtags I pick might have an influence. Yeah, I think so. We've talked about sort of the effect, but we haven't really talked about the cause and why um, this is so prevalent in, in Canadian politics in particular, um, much more so than sort of what I hinted at. Uh, well, maybe not more so than American politics, but there is a difference. The difference in that we don't have that robust policy community in the same way, for instance, the Americans do around think tank culture, right? In the American, and you know, depending on where you want to go with this, you can take it many different ways. But the American system is structured. So it, the vast majority or a significant proportion of their senior level um, sort of public service roles are political appointments. And so there's this dynamic when you have a change of administration basically everyone above the, we'd call it the DG level, the director general level, everyone in sort of a senior position um, loses their job and goes over to a think tank or a law firm and pontificates about the things going on in government. In Canada, mm -hmm. that's not really the case because the political level is limited to the minister's office. And then what happens to minister's office, there isn't the same warm landing spots for them. And so ministers' offices get scattered to the wind. A certain proportion of those staff stay in Ottawa, 
and pursue government relations and who knows what particular subsect. Um, but a lot end up going back to whichever town they came from, whichever community, whichever industry, um, and sort of their political expertise is lost. Um, the other the other part of this is that we don't have a robust system for policy development within political parties. Um, next week, I, this might have already happened by the time this podcast is released, but is the policy convention for the Conservative Party, which is basically a, a grassroots process. And actually, I should note the NDP and the Liberal ones have theirs in April. Um, but it's the grassroots process through which policy is created. But if you look at other countries, the, there are more institutions created to generate policy within political parties. The Conservative Party does not have, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, and the NDP are not policy producing entities. They are fundraising uh, and eventually election, but they are largely fundraising entities for, in a majority government, three and three quarters of the year. Um, and then they sort of snap over into election mode. And so they're really good at doing ads and they're really good at, you know, tasing the lizard brain in order to get donations. But robust mm -hmm. policy creation is really nowhere on their to-do list. They don't have full-time policy staff. And I think that stuns a lot of people when they, have, when they, when they discover that about Ottawa. Um, whereas in other countries, there are public funds set aside to political parties for the creation of policy all year round. Um, we sort of presume that that happens in our partisan think tanks. Um, we have think tanks that are loosely aligned with all the political parties. There was Broadbent, Manning, and Canada 2020 are sort of the three that you would point to. I would note Manning has since been renamed to the Strong and Free Foundation or something along those lines. <laughs> um, but even those as think tanks are often centered around sort of an extension of political parties in terms of advocacy and activism and things along those lines more so than policy. Right. Are we missing something meaningful? Like, is this a problem for our democracy that we don't have the 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 deep policy folks? I, I certainly think so. I think there is an absolute void in terms of um, thoughtful policymaking in Canada. Um, one of the examples I can give you, um, and, you know, someone I uh, respect tremendously is Sean Spear. Sean Spear and Robert Aslang are two academics, uh, academic sometimes at least, or once upon a time, they were both academics. I think Sean is now an academic and uh, Robert is working in the private sector. But they have gone together to write various sort of economic papers and, and analyses that make waves in Ottawa. But what's sort of surprising is the amount of impact that these two individuals have had in sort of a concerted push to put their minds together. And they both come from that political staffing world. Um, but it also sort of exposes the fault lines in Canada that when two people can have this big of an impact, what's going on the rest of the time? Where is the rest of our policy establishment? Mm -hmm. How are the think tanks like the uh, C.D. Howe and others, how are they read and understood in Ottawa um, when these sort of two upstart former political staff can write treatises that are you know, more broadly distributed than sort of our established think tanks. So I, I think there is a rethinking of how policy is funded and supported in Canada, um, because in the absence of that, a lot of our policy ends up coming uh, sort of secondhand through the United States, and it's perhaps not as relevant for our, for our system, for our context, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point to to look at. We need things to be Canadian specific if we're talking about Canadian policy development. And without that sort of specific push and incentives to create that, we uh, end up at risk. Unfortunately, though, we are coming up to time, and so we can't dig into it anymore. Uh, this has been absolutely fascinating, though, so I'm so, so happy. Uh, we ended up talking about liquid politics, really kind of going down that idea of like knowledge of a particular area versus skimming a bunch of areas uh, and talking about how that's worked in the Canadian system, which I think is really fascinating. So thank you for that. As always, though, I'd like to end <laughs> off the episode with a little pop quiz. Uh, oh, no, I wasn't taking notes. <laughs> uh, so short answer question, just one to two sentences maximum. I'll count your words. No, I'm not going to count your words. But I would like you to tell me in, in your perspective, what exactly is liquid politics? So not liquid democracy. Not liquid democracy. Excellent first step. Good, <laughs> good job identifying differences. Um, so I'd say liquid politics is the, the increasing prevalence of uh, generalists um, and sort of superficiality in terms of the topics of conversation and sort of the opening through which uh, a broad understanding and a rapid understanding uh, of a given policy area or file is useful and it's often facilitated or mediated via technology these days through platforms like Twitter. How, how's that? Yeah, that's, that is very good. I would only add on that the idea of liquid politics kind of is housed in this larger view of liquid modernity where we're seeing this sort of constant need for change, this constant flux. And so what you described about this tendency towards generalists uh, is, is a result of that larger liquid sort of system that we're part of sure agreed awesome well thank you so much thank you all right well thank you so much for listening that was our episode on liquid politics i hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to learn more about that theory or any other concepts or theories we talked about today go ahead and check the show notes or head over to paulcomtech.ca 